I certainly had, oh, I certainly had my share of hot buttons growing up. Many of you who know my story know I was by far the youngest in our family. Uh, my, my closest sibling uh, is nine and a half years older than me, and it goes up from there. And it actually goes in the other, gen in the other direction too. My next uh, relative in my extended family is probably about 10 years younger than me, minus a few cousins scattered throughout the country that I didn't know very well. I was just sort of the one who was dropped right into the middle of two generations. So I got my share of just a uh, moments. You're just a kid. You're just a boy. You're just a this or that. Trying to, to hold my own against people or with people, you know, 10 years older than me and just the life accomplishments that a 20 year old can do that a 10 year old hasn't yet had the chance to do yet. That was one of those things that would get me. I would, in fact, often bait people. Just goad them into telling me, you can't do this or that or the other thing. Just so I had an excuse to prove them wrong. Yeah, I had some hot buttons. And probably a couple chips on my shoulder growing up. What can I say? I'll admit it. Now... Maybe you know a little bit of what that's like. Thinking, I can't do something amazing because I'm just this or I'm just that or I'm just too old or just too young. Or, so yeah, I'll throw in both of those. Or I'm just too uneducated or too um, immobile or whatever. Maybe like you feel like you're the one that would have been voted least likely to succeed in those high school superlatives that seem to hang on to us and our, our um, personalities for far longer than they ever should. Maybe you even said that to yourself sometimes. We can be really good at being our own worst enemies. Amidst having a couple of hot buttons and a couple of chips on my shoulders, I was a master at that one. Can God still use us for amazing things? Sometimes even in spite of our attitudes and our thinking, I can't do this because I'm just a this or I'm just a that. That's going to be the engine for the series we're going to go over for the next couple of weeks as we look at some of Maybe the behind-the-scenes characters that we don't look at all that often. But we're going to start with one, as I have been setting up all service, with a character that you do know. I'm sure, knowing you've probably heard this story a bunch of times. Now, the story is a long one, so I'm going to be drawing bits and pieces out of it um, so we don't get lost in all the detail. But the story comes out of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesamon. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, 
And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Now there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, about eight feet. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let them come down to me. Be as able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all the others heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And King Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are just a boy. And he has been a warrior from his youth. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes, David, may the Lord be with you. Now again, before you say, all right, I've heard this one. I know it. I know exactly where he's going to go. Guarantee you don't. Hang with me a little bit on this one. Because we often have in our minds... God bless Sunday school. We have an image of what this story is trying to tell us. David, good. Goliath, bad. Be like David. Go forth to love and serve the Lord. Except that common image of the hero of the faith, David, leaves little real hope for us people who are just regular human beings. If we're going to see how God does amazing things through just a boy, let's use courage as kind of the lens through which we're going to um, view the characters that are laid out in this valley of Elah. And I'm going to tip my hat to, to Tim Keller. I studied a lot of his work on this one because I knew for a long time, I, I knew there's got to be more than be like David to this story. That, that just something didn't sit right, that that was the point of the story. And Keller does a great job of laying out how, how this story, I believe, really is meant to be understood in a way that does give us just regular humans some real hope. Now let's go to a bit of the history lesson here. Because this kind of call-out isn't necessarily very normal outside of, uh, you know, junior high bravado and um, 12-year-old boys calling each other out to fight after school or something like that and, and mach, machismo their way to, to popularity among the kids. But back then, it was actually a pretty normal way of doing things. You might even say an economical way of fighting because instead of two nations destroying each other for thousands and thousands of deaths, you basically have one-on-one -on -one combat, representative 
combat, and the war gets ended with only one person dying. Maybe two. Real economical way to do it. So you would have one representative, one champion, the man between, literally, hang on to that phrase, for each nation. And they weren't just fighting for their country, for the Philistine nation or for Israel. They were actually fighting as their country. Their loss meant the nation's loss. How it went for that one person, for David or Goliath, is how it was going to go for the Philistines or the Israelites. And there's a reason I started off setting this up with Saul's story out of 1 Samuel 9. Because about, for about 300 years, Israel had been uh, governed, if you will, by God-given judges. Until the day came when Israel looked around and saw how other nations were doing things. They're like, God, we want a king. We want somebody to sit on a throne and rule just like all our other, just like all the other kids on the block. And God finally relents, says, all right, fine. We won't do things the way of the judges. We'll do things the way you want. I'll give in and you can have a king. And he anoints through the judge, Samuel, he gives them Saul. The man who, all right, if you're going to choose a king, God, to start things off, he set the bar pretty high. He chose the man you would expect. Head and shoulders above everybody else. More handsome than anybody else. Think of it as (coughs) a biblical Hugh Jackman or or Russell Crowe or whoever happens to be on time as the most attractive man of the year, however they decide to term that for this year. But as the king, as the strongest fighter of Israel, Goliath was Saul's giant to fight. Saul's giant to step up and take on and represent his nation and fight as Israel. And Goliath's the obvious choice for the Philistines. He's, you know, eight feet tall. He's got all the super high-tech armor and weaponry. One writer even says it's amazing how much description is given to, uh, to Goliath and describing him and describing his armor and describing his, his weaponry. Um, usually, those kinds of descriptions in Jewish literature were very, very sparse. But in this case, the writer decides to really hone in and give a lot of why, a lot of describing um, Goliath, as we'll get to in a, in a minute. But Goliath says, choose a man already. that we can just get together and fight in this, in this valley that makes kind of this natural coliseum. Choose a man is basically calling out Saul. He's calling out the king. For 40 days, the part that I didn't go into, he's kind of just doing this uh, broken record thing. He says, step up, Saul. You're the king. You're the, the head and shoulders above everybody else. You and me. 
Let's just go at it, get this thing done. I'll kill you, your people will be our servants, and we'll go on with the world. But each day Saul backs down. He procrastinates. He starts to, his courage, or his image of courage starts to wane. Chris Bell says in his book, Broken Crown, he said, Saul hoped, like many of us do, that the giant would simply go away. Saul didn't realize that every day the giant's challenge went unanswered. His own ability to lead the nation diminished. And as Goliath grew louder, Saul became weaker. Notice he says it, well, he doesn't say as Goliath grew stronger, Saul got weaker. He says he just got louder. All he had to do. For Saul, like the rest of the Israelites, courage is incredibly lacking. Even though he's king. So what about Goliath? Let's take this lens of courage and look at another character. What does he show us about courage? Even though, stereotypically, because that's kind of what we learn in Sunday school, we look at Goliath and think he's the bad guy. Maybe there's still something we can glean looking at him. Even though he is, according to Israel, the bad guy. Maybe there's still something we can glean for him. He's the guy who has everything going for him. Physically huge. I mean, LeBron James would be a shrimp compared to this guy. Incredibly high-tech armor and weaponry. As I said, um, it's amazing how much description is given to Saul and I, I, uh, to Goliath. I know I didn't read through a lot of it. You've probably heard that part a thousand times before. But why is there so much unique description? Because the point isn't David good, Goliath bad, end of story. Rather, it's showing us two different angles of courage. Goliath has a particular flavor of courage. The kind of courage that you see in two middle school boys on the hill after school calling each other out to fight throwing their chests around, getting all their bravado on. There's all these um, pre-fight kind of things that, that people do, especially guys, and you can just watch them and be like, yep, I know exactly. You're going to try and throw a punch. Or you're going to try and um, get aggressive. And Goliath's got that in spades. Courage through the denial of fear. I can do it. I can do it. I've got all this size. I've got all this high-tech weaponry on me. David, this little just-a-boy can't beat me. You might think of it as um, visualization to victory. You know, you, um, you see yourself, imagine yourself victorious in whatever it is that you're trying to do. You know, if, you, if you're... Um, afraid of giving a speech. You see yourself in your, in your mind's eye up there in front of people and you're giving the greatest speech and the crowd is with you and all this. And you just imagine it all going perfectly. 
And then you get up there and you make it happen. If you're, you know, doing, this often comes up in sports and athletics and, you know, you're um, getting ready to kick the game-winning goal or shoot the game-winning basket and in your mind's eye, you're thinking, swish, 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 through the uprights, into the goal, whatever it is. And you picture that in your mind and, and then you go and you make that happen. You visualize yourself to victory. It's great for athletics. And I've coached people, um, athletes, to do exactly that. But in this case, we're dealing here with warfare. Somebody's going to die. It puts Goliath out of touch with reality. Because he's kind of rah rah himself and beat, beat his chest and I'm bigger than you, you're just a boy. How do you send this dog after me? Well, he forgets the very real danger of what David has. Because yeah, David, Goliath has a sword and a, and a javelin and, and a shield and all that. David has a couple of rocks. And maybe they're just one or two inch rocks. But in that particular sling that he starts whipping around, he can get that thing up to 60 miles an hour. And I don't care how much bravado you got, how loud your voice is, you get hit with a rock at 60 miles an hour, you're going down. Very real danger. That Goliath says, he's just a dog. He can't do anything to me. Imagine this too. Because I said, there's a, there's a place for the visualization thing to work. If you're shooting the winning basket, if you're going for the winning goal, if you're going to, you know, ask the girl out or the guy out, yeah, that works great. What if courage has nothing good to visualize? What if real courage has no victory to it? There's a story of a lady, first-class lady named Edith Course Evans. She was a first-class passenger on the Titanic. Now, being first-class, she had her name automatically on a seat on the lifeboats. But as they're going, you know, from the other side of the pond to New York, and <laughs> things go south. Edith didn't have anybody in New York waiting for her. And there was a non-first class passenger, a lady, I don't even know her name, who did have children on the other side in New York waiting for her to get there. All she had to do was be able to make it there. And Edith gave up her seat. Give, essentially giving her life for this lady who would have children to, to receive and, and live for on the other end of the journey. Now, what vision is she going to hang on to to visualize victory that gives her the courage to give up her seat? I'm somehow going to survive this freezing ocean water. Somebody's going to end up, after the lifeboats have gone, somebody's going to come and save me. Nope. 
She was signing her life away. She was going to die by this act. Was it an act of courage? Yeah, you could certainly argue it was. But she couldn't rah-rah herself past over that hump of, I'm not going to survive this. There was no good ending for her. She needed something to give her courage in spite of her fears. Maybe we'll start to get, maybe we're starting to get to where God wants this story to go. But we still have one more good character that we haven't looked at. Should we follow David? Sunday school story. David, the hero, be like David. Is he meant to be an inspiration? Does he say to the rest of the Israelites who are, who are waning in, in um, fear, follow me, Israel. Visualize us going into the Valley of Eli and chopping up the giant and having victory and Uzzah and all that sort of stuff. Is that what David does? No. Dare I say it, that's the Sunday school lesson that we draw out of it. Be like David. Now I'm all for inspiring stories. But David's not trying to, God's not trying to use David to inspire us. He's not an inspiration. He's a substitute. He's a champion. The man between, literally. The man who is going to be in our place, in Israel's place. Don't follow me, Israel. Don't try and do what I'm doing. I'm going to go do it for you. I mean, if anybody in the story, we're best going to relate to Saul, to the Israelites. No offense, because I raise both hands. There's times when fear wins the day on me too. One who balks when fear sets in. That's going to be our default. Now, before you think I'm trying to, you know, just bash you, because again, I, this hits me too. We're going to jump for a minute to Hebrews 11. The chapter that is the hall of fame of faith, the, the inspiration of the heroes of the faith. All, you know, you could follow a Sunday school curriculum, just one character after another, that the writer of Hebrews says, remember this person, remember this person, remember this person, for a whole chapter. And it's just a litany of incredible people of faith. And then he gets to Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Some translations will put it the author and the perfecter of our faith. That word in the Greek is the Greek word meaning champion. Just the way 
Goliath was the champion, the representative for the Philistines. Just the way David was the champion, the man between, standing in for Israel. Jesus, the champion, the man between for our faith. Who for the sake of the joy that was set for him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The one who stands in the gap for us. Who took on the ultimate nightmare for us. Now what is that? Is it the nightmare of being humiliated or of failure or not measuring up? No. Those are, those stink. But those are just small, just small compared to the real nightmare, the nightmare of facing God and having to account for the times that we allowed fear to win the day. That maybe God called us to do something amazing. We said, I can't because I'm just this or just that. You want me to talk to this person about who you are? I can't because I'm just this or just that or I'm just afraid or whatever else it is that holds us back. But since Jesus faced death on our behalf, we don't have to fear them. Tim Keller says in his study on this, he says, it's not the vision of Jesus dying on the cross as a brave example. It's not be like Jesus. But Jesus dying on the cross for you that can make you brave. So hang on to that image this week. Not of us being courageous, not of us visualizing ourselves to victory, unless you're going to shoot the winning basket or something like that, then by all means, visualize away. But of Jesus being courageous in our place for us, And because of him, even our present failures, the things that maybe we think, I can't do this because I'm just a this or just a that, can't diminish our joy in him. Because whatever happens, whether we humiliate ourselves or embarrass ourselves or fall flat on our faces, it happens. Ultimately, because he was our champion, He was the one who ultimately stood in the gap for us. It'll ultimately be okay. And that is a joy that no fear can break. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for being willing to stand in the gap for us, to be our champion, to be the one who who stood in our place. Help us to just hang on to that and to find our hope and our courage in what you did. All this we pray in your name. Amen.